This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Pelgrane Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Heist Catastrophe. Ken's most specialized books. The Mystery of the Russian Economist. And The White Ship Disaster. Okay, Ken, we've been summoned, I mean, invited, to attend another gloriously gloomy party at Castle Slogar. Remember, keep your eyes peeled and your reflexes ready. The Slogar's festering festivity involves more cleavers than confetti. Where did everyone disappear to? Did they all get ludicrously lost in the hedge maze again? I think I heard muffled laughter, or was that sobbing? It's coming from behind that door. Of course it's locked. Just our luck. Hold your skeletal horses, Ken. Look at the floor. The tiles have markings, just like in that puzzle game book I have. Unhappy birthday at Castle Slogar. Aha, found the book. How will a book about a birthday gone wrong help us find a party that might not even exist? Well, in Unhappy Birthday at Castle Slogar, things go awfully awry during Melissa Slogar's latest ninth birthday party. Guests are lost and Lord Slogar is missing. Sound familiar? Whoa, that's eerily similar. Wait, the book has a map. Oh, but it's blank. How do we navigate with that? Patience, Ken. The book describes each room and the exquisitely eerie obstacles you have to overcome. You can even use a special website to check your answers, get hints, and unveil the map as you explore. So we need to solve a puzzle in this room to get to the party in the next room. You're catching on now. Let's see. I remember the foyer puzzle involved. And then you... And just my... And voila! Look, the password! And the door! It's unlocked! Now let's go party like it's 1899! Hey, uh, can I borrow that puzzle game book? No way! It's mine! But you can get your own copy of Unhappy Birthday at Castle Slogar from Atlas Games at atlas-games.com slash b-d-a-y. The rattle of dice, the thump of miniatures, the crunch of Doritos, the hiss of the wire recorder, the stumbling collapse into a stairwell, the embarrassing scream of the headlines, and Peter Frampton denying all knowledge welcome us once more into The Gaming Hut, where beloved Patreon backer Tennant Reed, inspired by the TV show Gaslit, says that this has inspired a question, what are the gaming possibilities in a player-conducted heist that goes profoundly, administration-wreckingly wrong? Is there campaign juice in exploring the full cascade of consequences after the sneaky then arrested first act? Are murder hobos apt participants in a Saturday night massacre? And I know, of course, that Tenant Reed knows that a Saturday night massacre is merely a series of firings of uh, attorney generals and has got nothing to do with actual massacring and that game night is Monday night. So obviously that last part can be taken as a lovely quip, but 
Yes, Robin, should you Watergate your players or allow them, I guess in this case, to Watergate themselves, and is that good play or is that weird, strange play, and is that still good? Well, in order for it to be good play, I think you have to set out to do it. Right, yeah. (laughs) Right, and so I think that if the implicit promise of the series is that you are you know, engaged in intrigue and your super smart operators and agents that you are not going to have a thing go horribly wrong and turn into basically an extended fiasco game. Mm-hmm. But if you start out saying you're playing guys who aren't terribly smart and things are going to get out of hand, that I think could be a lot of fun in, again, a sort of an extended fiasco, skullduggery, sort of satirical tongue-in-cheek way and the show gaslit which i would recommend does definitely have a dramatic aspect but also a comedic aspect because it's about things going wrong they don't go wrong to the extent they might in the coen brothers version of it but they in real history they they went plenty wrong and so i think however that in order to maintain agency the first thing you're going to have to do is specify that the people who get arrested in the heist that goes wrong are non-player characters under your direction who you give, you know, perhaps careful, perhaps stupid instructions to, and they go out and they screw everything up. And then the rest of the intrigue of the series is about you trying to contain the fallout and probably you trying to survive. Essentially, this is survival horror <laughs> with a scandal and a, and a headline and possibly, you know, the, some PvP action as the players all try to throw each other under the uh, the bus. You know, looking at the people involved in the actual break-in, really only one of them is on a sort of a decision-making level at all, and that's James McCord. And, you know, he makes up, I mean, him and Sturgis, both, I don't, I'm not as familiar with the three Cubans, but they, they make good characters in a different game, but in this game, their job is to be sidelined and sit quietly and take the rap, or as is maybe the case, not do that. And so that's, you know, you have a, a already a divergence of who's doing what. And over and above the fact that I, you know, agree with you entirely that unless the campaign premise is live with the consequences of your actions, you goofs, and that's explained to the player characters, if this was a break-in and say, a Knight's Black Agents game, or Fall of Delta Green, let's say, and then you come out of it, and sure enough, your attempt to, you know, bug uh, a senator's office who you suspect of trafficking with deep ones, just because he's from Massachusetts and keeps falling into lakes, and then there's, you know, a giant scandal about it and a huge storm. Even in Fall of Delta Green, your characters would not be the people containing or dealing with the storm. They would be the people who are, you know, basically sidelined as the storm continues. And it's, you know, I suppose you could sort of justify in a sort of, well, this is why the CSI guy is carrying a gun way that TV does, having your fall of Delta Green guys involved somehow in a follow-on operation that maybe tries to contain the damage. But you couldn't have them be doing the sort of bureaucratic survival horror, as you so aptly put it, that is the sort of main action of Gaslit, or it was arguably the main action of the historical Watergate. And that's that really w- does require almost two different games. Like you've got a skullduggery game going on that's being played by the Nixon administration or a fiasco game. And then you've got, you know, a procedural part that is done by, in theory, disposable cutouts who might be player characters who've gotten up to other adventures. They've run guns to Cuba or whatever it is. 
and then now they're this is their latest cool adventure is to break into the democratic uh uh the mcgovern campaign headquarters and you know hilarity ensues when you roll an escalation robin not a fumble right yes i suppose you could do it troop style yeah. where you have the the plumbers the actual people conducting the break-in and then you have the people running the plumbers and then perhaps you even have like the cabinet. You could do like three levels of this if you really wanted to. But I, th- I think essentially it has to be done with the same tone as Gaslit in a sort of a comic manner. And it's going to be, I think, a contained game that's probably, I think you're going to want to run it maybe three to five sessions before yeah. you exhaust every uh, possibility of it. Yes. Everyone was tired of real Watergate long before the campaign was over. I'll say that. Well, actually, as a Watergate junkie, I still love Watergate things, <laughs> which is why I happily enjoyed Gaslight. Right. And incidentally, thought it did a really good job of looking at different corners of the story that had uh, not been covered as well as, of course, mm. doing the G. Gordon Liddy storyline and doing it very well. And so I think the next question is, if you have a group of Watergate buffs, they will try to do Watergate in all of its labyrinthine detail, but that comes out a certain way that everybody expects. Mm-hmm. And if you even have one person in the group who doesn't know Watergate, they're going to be very annoyed and out of their depth. And, yeah. you know, they'll enjoy all of the great names that the characters have, because of course, as I've said before, the thing about Watergate, it has the best names for all of the characters of, of any scandal ever. Um, I, I think you're going to want to transpose it and just look at the basic concept of, you know, a political scandal that has a criminal element that you are uh, complicit in as the people running the thing. And then, you know, stuff starts to go wrong and you're all trying to uh, protect your position and protect the uh, administration. But it's going to have to be done. And I think in a really ironic tone, which is why yeah. I suggested it be uh, relatively short. So do we do the first session is the giving the orders, planning the operation, or do we go in media res and start with the real premise, which is that the uh, operation is already uh, broken down and, and you've just got the call that the burglars have been arrested. I feel like to make it sort of thematically work, and I'm not saying this would work at the table, you have a series of things that you've been doing with your team of burglars and they've all worked pretty well, right? You've done, you know, you've blackmailed some guy out of the race or you've done this, or you've done that, whatever dirty tricks you decide your core team of presidential advisors gets up to, and then one of them goes horribly wrong, and that's what the rest of the game is about. And everyone sort of knows that, you know, on a meta level, this is the game about pushing your luck until it breaks, and then you get all the consequences of your actions. But on the character level, they don't know that. And I think that might be, especially if you're doing sort of a, oh, we're not doing Watergate, we're just doing a generic uh, campaign skullduggery game, that it might be more fun to be sort of daring yourself on the meta level to come up with a dumber and dumber idea until one of them does, in fact, you know, screw up a third-rate burglary. And uh, you do, in fact, then get to see all the cascades. You know, it's, it's like you've set up all your dominoes, but you don't know where you're going to knock uh, the whole structure over from. I think that would be more fun, assuming you get people buying into the concept of the game in the first place, which is you know, as you say, kind of a big lift. I've kind of talked myself back into that fall of Delta green thing though, because that is the, the game in which you are most likely to be interfering with political actors and cause blowback on your parent agency. And if you could solve the problem of 
in sort of a, you know, and we use the term realistic here, but in a realistic sense, your characters would be sitting in a federal lockup, being told by the program to keep quiet, and you figured out some way to get them back onto the field in action doing a thing. Or, you know, in, in fairness, my Delta Green players would love suddenly playing the next level up of the program, trying to contain the damage while their ostensible PCs marinate in their own failure. I think that my current player group would really kind of vibe on that. And I think, I don't know if you want to spring that on a group that you don't think would, but I, I feel like maybe suddenly it's a troop style game. Suddenly we're like, we're pulling back a level is, is the fun kind of reveal that often makes a campaign seem really interesting and alive. Yeah, it could be done as an interlude in an existing game. And I suppose like if perhaps a couple of players are going to be off on summer holiday or something for a while and you want their, you have a catch, a shake up, you could uh, use it to do that. Mm -hmm. So now the break in has occurred and that has happened either on stage or off stage, depending whether you're going troop or NPC for the burglars. And the characters begin to start interacting and start trying to control it. They're getting orders from the top to contain everything. And I think this is probably they're going to twig to the fact that the administration is going to need bigger scapegoats than just the people who broke in. Right. And that the rest of the game is essentially you are jockeying to decide which one of you is John Dean. Right. So I guess the next challenge is everybody's going to want to right away be John Dean. So what's the, the limitation uh, that keeps them all loyal and stupidly going forward? I almost feel like there needs to be a mechanic where you are obligated to, you have a set number of stupid points and you have to spend your stupid points by doing stupid things before you can then get bonuses that will allow you to do smart things. And so obviously an easy way to spend your stupid points for the evening is by remaining loyal to the administration, thinking that, you know, you're the one who's going to make it through, which of course is the historical analog, but it's very hard to get players to be dumb in that, in that particular way. Well, I think you have to in the course of the game, make it a very real chance that the administration survives this scandal, that Nixon orders the tapes burned on the lawn, you know, whatever. It, it's hard to say, you know, President Nixon had too much of a concern for the rule of law, but apparently, as recent events have shown, <laughs> anything goes if you're a slightly different kind of a president. So you would have to, because the real reason people didn't defect and didn't all become John Dean is because it was a game theory thing. You know that if you defect and Nixon survives, you're destroyed. You don't get a white shoe law job. You don't get anything. You're wrecked. You're ruined. And so, you know, one hesitates to say that John Dean showed bravery, but he certainly calculated his jump from the sinking ship to perfection. And so, therefore, I feel like you have to hold out in the campaign the very real promise that your president will, in fact, survive this. And maybe one of the ways to invest your players in it, and again, this may be getting out into political weeds that aren't going to work at everyone's table, is to have the players, and as well as the player characters, kind of invested in the survival of the administration. Like, he's going to do really great things for global warming or containing China or whatever it is that the players themselves are all super into. And so you're like, look, if if Nixon goes away, the com you know, Russia wins. We can't let McGovern run the country. That would be a disaster. And, you know, in fact, maybe it would have been. But as it, as it turned out, you know, we had the 70s sort of disaster on, on Simmer. 
But I think that's the way you get it is that the players have to be playing characters who are really invested in the survival of the presidency. And there has to be a very real chance that the president does in fact make it through the, uh, the, the storm that has been conjured by these third rate burglars. Right. Right. And so I think what you do is at the beginning of each session, there's a new level of threat to the administration that ratchets up because indeed the, in the actual history, the, News of the break-in broke before the election. So when hadn't won the election? It yes. was until afterwards that things started falling apart. So it did look for the longest time like things were that they were going to be able to gut it out. And so each chunk, and maybe even like the early chunks, you're pursuing other objectives. And the break-in is is really you know it's item number three. You have to make sure that it doesn't get completely out of hand. But there's other stuff that you're trying to do. You're trying to mm-hmm. win the election if you're following the actual historical model correctly and then each session begins with another uh, turn of the screw and the, the final turn of the screw is when the mccord character decides that oh maybe i do want to turn state's evidence now that i've gotten this giant sentence and so each time things start to get worse and look more parlous and it's really only in episode uh, three or five or whatever your final episode is that you start to realize that oh no this is this is all about who gets in the lifeboat. Yeah, that the nature of the, of the game changes or the nature of the game theory, you know, reveals itself that we are now doing prisoner's dilemma. We're not doing the other one. Yeah, we're not trying to score points with the administration. We're trying mm-hmm. to escape uh, its wreckage. And that sounds like a conclusive note if I ever heard one. So it's exactly. time for us. Complete with wreckage. Yeah, to head on out and see what lies on the other side. Calgary Press invites you to a reality-shattered mask ball. With three new support products for the Yellow King role-playing game. Black Star Magic, a guide to supernatural powers in the four realms haunted by the King in Yellow. Where every spell is potent. A potent shock card, that is. Includes magic rules and their accompanying shock cards by Robin. And a magic-rich scenario for each of the four sequences. Dancer at the Bone Cabaret, Sarah Saltiel's Tale of Belle Epoch Terror. A Casket at Latil, village-based military horror from Gareth Ryder Hanrahan. Memories of a Dream Clown, Ruth Kitchen Tillman's visitation with everyone's favorite Aftermath children's entertainer. And Sarah's Love Wears No Mask, which brings Carcosa to its natural contemporary home, reality television. Also out now, Legions of Carcosa, the bestiary for the Yellow King. From alien parasites to warped human conspirators. From hungry buildings to incarnations of drought. From gods torn from the pages of myth to war machines that hunt in wolf-like packs. Legions of Carcosa presents 86 new foes to mystify, haunt, and menace your investigators. Fresh from the skull-masked minds of John R. Harness, Kira Magrin. Sam Saltiel and Monica Valatinelli with Daniel Kwan. Finally, you can now also grab Robin's latest novel, Fifth Imperative. Follow the technician, previously seen in The Missing and the Lost, as he continues his reluctant political rise and discovers a bullet that refuses to follow the rules. Kicking off a fast-paced supernatural alternate reality political thriller. Yep, it's one of those again. All three available now. That's Black Star Magic, Legions of Carcosa, and Fifth Imperative. Available at Royally Superior your local game stores or at the Pelgrane Press web shop. Speaking of change of pace, it's time for a most different installment of Ken's Bookshelf, a Ken's Bookshelf that 
does not take place at the end of the episode is not about things that you've recently acquired, uh, but Ken was uh, inspired by a uh, a recent conversation in which you were discussing a book, which I think you're going to mention at further length. Oh, and yeah. I realized that what we need on this show is for you to tell us about the five most specialized books in your collection. And I, I understand that Sheila had some general advice for you on how, how to locate uh, these five books and what categories they would fall into. Yeah. Um, I read this note in the script to Sheila and I said, what do you think would be the five most specialized books in my collection? And we agreed, for example, that, you know, in theory, a biography of a fairly obscure person would be a specialized book, but every biography exists for a reason. The person's important in something. We got a lot of true crime books that are just about a sordid murder didn't really have any effect on the rest of the world, but it's an important story to the people involved. So, you know, specialized sort of implies who would write that or better yet, why would you buy that, Ken? <laughs> yes, you need a, a two parts to this equation. Right. Someone wrote it and then you bought it. Right. So Sheila's suggestion for most specialized books begin with the uh, Geobibliography of Anomalies by George Eberhardt, which we've discussed previously on this show. It's my giant compendium of every weird thing that has happened in the world, or rather in North America, up to about 1983. It's a magical thing. Sheila gave it to me at Christmas, and explaining what it was to her family is the first and perhaps most beautiful challenge that book has ever <laughs> had to accomplish. Then she suggested my most recondite historical atlas, the one about the most minuscule or obscure part of the world, all my historical atlases are beautiful, and I love them equally, but the historical atlas of Central America maybe is the one that people might raise eyebrows at if they were haters. She's familiar with my Osprey books habit slash collection, and so she suggested the smallest army for the shortest time. <laughs> so if, if there was an Osprey book for Zanzibari troops in the Anglo-Zanzibar War, that would maybe win the award. Um, there are certainly Osprey books for like, you know, Austrian special forces during the Napoleonic Wars, which is a pretty small unit. Uh, Brunswick, the army of the German city-state of Brunswick, somehow has its own book for the latter half of the Napoleonic Wars. Well, you're not the only person. Many listeners will have an Osprey habit as well, so perhaps yeah. people can chip in their nominations for the smallest army for the shortest time. Right. Then she suggested, what about Lovecraft's Letters to a Complete Nobody? She is aware, again. <laughs> And if this sounds passive aggressive, I want everyone to be aware there's no passiveness in this. That's not how Sheila runs this railroad. Yeah. So I, you know, I literally just got H.P. Lovecraft's letters to Hyman Bradovsky. And without cracking the book, I don't know who Hyman Bradovsky is. So <laughs> I feel like that would have been a great choice. You're not a nobody if Ken Height knows who you are. Right. And then uh, she suggested an extremely technical game design book, which I think is a charming belief that there is anything to our job that other people write down. I would say so, so Hamlet's hit points, basically she's zinging me as well. Right. Yeah. Uh, well, that's, that's campaign designs, not even game design, but um, I would suggest that although building blocks of tabletop game design and encyclopedia of mechanisms by Jeffrey Engelstein and Isaac Shalev is a little obscure. It should not be. N not for listeners of this show at any rate. No. N nobody's, uh, other than Sheila, who listens to this show, thinks there's such a thing as an overly specialized game book. Right. So this brings us to the actual thing. The actual list. That you've pulled down from your shelf. And the first one is Biological Anomalies, Humans 3 by William R. Corliss. Yes. William R. Corliss 
is the great student scholar explorer of anomalies. And this is basically like Charles Fort, but without the connective prose, it's just the citations. And there are tens of these books, most of which are out of print, some of which are covered in larger compendia books, but Biological Anomalies Humans 3, I just want to give you a sense, because Humans 1 is just about, you know, what if people had tails or had telescopic visions, you know? It's your basic human anomalies. Right. Biological Anomalies Human 2 is, what if your organs were weird or your skeleton was strange? You know, so for example, it would be like people who shed their skin or blood chimeras. So you've got different blood types and different arms type stuff. Nostril cycling, which I don't even know what it is. It sounds very exciting. But humans three, Robin, this is the real winner because this is about the human fossil record, biochemistry and genetics, possible unrecognized living hominids and human interactions with other species. So for example, let me just read you some of these things. So in the human interface phenomena, we have viral manipulation of behavior, ultimate parasites. There's a really insane one in here. Man-machine interface. That's good. A human wasp phenomenon. Don't even know what that would be. Talking to elephants and then various people uh, whose uh, skeletons were found places that they shouldn't have been. So that's just in this one slim volume. There's, as I say, two other humans books, which I don't have. There's a whole selection of animals. There's an archaeology handbook, which I have, for example, Ancient Infrastructure, Remarkable Roads, Mines, Walls, Mounds, Stone Circles. I have that book. Uh, the, the one that I thought might be in here, Lightning, Auroras, Nocturnal Lights, a Catalog of Geophysical Anomalies, and Other Related Luminous Phenomena. So it's not about UFOs, Robin. It's just about weird lights in the sky. Right. Well, I can already hear a Patreon banker scrambling to the uh, Ken and Robin Patreon page to ask for a whole segment on human wasp phenomena. <laughs> but it's time for us to move on to A Pictorial History of the American Carnival, Volume 2, by Joe McKinnon. Right. Now, this is a gift that was given to me by beloved, I believe, Patreon backer, certainly in front of the show, Charles Picard. And it was something he found in his father's library as he was uh, uh, disassembling it. And it is the pictorial history of the American carnival. And obviously I love carny books. So this is great, but it's volume two, which is the thing that I think pulls it into the, into the universe. And so it looks like it's just sort of carnivals from say 1900 to 1940, but it is, there are pictures of famous carnival impresarios. And I cannot stress enough how not famous a famous carnival impresario is. <laughs> there are, schedules for various traveling carnivals. Like, do you want to know when the Gaskill Carnival was in Dayton, Ohio, Robin? Well, I can tell you, in 1899, they were there in late June and early July. Well, this is exactly the time frame that you need for Call of Cthulhu or Trail right. of Cthulhu. So, yeah. that, that hits a sweet spot. Now, the book that inspired this segment, Vietnam War, U.S. and Allied Combat Equipments by Gordon L. Rotman. And you might think, that doesn't sound so specialized, but can. No. Oh. You see, when I got this book, and I think I got it from Osprey as a as a uh, free Osprey book when they were giving them away to me as an Osprey author, and I thought, oh, this will be great. This is, you know, as they say, what we carry. This is what they carried in, in Vietnam. This will be terrific. Well, it's not about what they carried, Robin. It's about how they carried it, because it's a book about web belts. 
It's just it about belts. Equipment the means belts, belts, suspenders, and web gear worn by the United States combat infantry branches and by certain of America's allies in Vietnam. So it does talk about Australian web belts, for example, Robin, if you were curious. And I think Korean web belts may get a look in if we're very lucky. But it's literally, it's sumptuously illustrated, scholarly to a fault, classic 64-page Osprey book, lots of drawings, and all the drawings are of web belts. You you have to get a different book to say what's on the web belts. This right. is this is like uh, you know Bart looking at the pictures of cakes with Seymour's mom. They're, oh, we can't have cake. It's terrible for you. We're gonna look at pictures of cakes. That's this is pictures of cakes of the Vietnam War, and this is the book, as you say, that inspired this segment. I'm trying to think who, like even you, got this semi accidentally. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm trying to think who the person is who got this on purpose, and I guess it's. Someone who's doing costume research. For yeah, that has Vietnam to be it. Or you're really, really concerned with um, the color of your Vietnam War mini, I guess, is the only other. Yeah. Uh, now we come to something that uh, is highly specialized, but I think uh, you have already found a use for it. Mm-hmm. And that's Occult Territory in Arthur Machen Gazetteer, edited by R.B. Russell. And again, this is one of those uh, books that it lures you in with the title and then it hits you with what it actually is, which I still love and want. But rather than a Lovecraft letter to Hyman Brodowski or some other nobody, it's like, well, who's more obscure than Lovecraft? Arthur Mackin, sadly. And so I got uh, this book, Occult Territory, and Arthur Mackin Gazetteer. And you may think, oh, this is great. This is going to be all the places that Arthur Mackin mentions in his fiction. He's a great author of place. We're going to learn so much about Wales. No, Robin. This is a book about everywhere that Arthur Mackin lived, everywhere that they know he drank, Every church he worshipped at, and other places he hung out a lot. So, yes, like, not not the work of Arthur Machen, but no, the life of Arthur Machen. This is, and so it's like, is there bookstores that he went to? Yes, there are. Robin uh, Reeves and Turner, David Nutt's bookshop in the Strand, Denny's bookshop also in the Strand. So, yeah, this is the life of Arthur Machen, told only in addresses. And uh, there's some lovely pictures. There's little maps. It's. It's an amazing piece of work, and quite frankly, I'm embarrassed for Lovecraft scholars, and I'm going to call out my good friend Donovan Lux, for not having one of these about Lovecraft. There should be two volumes of this for Lovecraft by now, and someone has fallen down on the job. He did occasionally leave his house. And this explains, like, this list of historical bookstores that Arthur Machen went to, that explains why Time Incorporated has set out that rule saying you're no longer allowed to use the time machine to go back in time and go to bookstores. Oh, yeah. It's it's been a it's been a guideline for a while, but they did in fact make it a formal rule at my last review in sixteen eighty seven, I think. And finally we come to Mancorn, Cannibalism and Violence in the Prehistoric American Southwest by Christy G. Turner the Second and Jacqueline A. Turner. And it is five hundred and fifty two pages. So this is highly specialized and I assume highly comprehensive. Yeah, and this this used to be when people said, Ken, what's the strangest book you own? This used to be my sort of go to because they couldn't handle the actual strangest books I own. But I still love it. This is a book I picked up, used, and pulled it down. And all 552 pages are lengthy and informed. This is an academic book from, I think, University of Utah Press. Um, uh, lengthy and informed studies of archaeological sites, mostly involving the Anasazi peoples of the Southwest and the absolutely irrefutable evidence for cannibalism at those sites. And so it's just, 
an endless stretch of here's a cave in New Mexico where they found these human bones split for marrow with these knife marks on them. Here's another cave in Arizona where guess what? Same thing. And it just goes on and on and on. It just builds it out. It's sort of a towering example of scholarship at its finest in that it is, you know, rigorous and relentless. It is super well documented. And it is just about the most recondite, weird topic you can imagine, because I assume there was a big academic fight about worthy Anasazi cannibals, and this book must have ended it, because everyone basically sort of says, yeah, I guess. Yeah, I think always when there's a, any culture uh, is accused of that, there's someone who's saying, no, that's the other culture accusing them of that, and right. there's a desire to defend that. And so uh, I guess that's why it's 552 pages of ending that story. Yeah. And, and it's, it's always, you know, held a place of honor on my shelves. It's next because it's a big book. It's oversized. So it's next to like UFO books and other sort of books that don't deserve to be in the same universe as man corn. But I'm always, first of all, who doesn't love the title? Second of all, it is in fact, a very gameable topic, the Anasazi. And third of all, it's just a, a great monument to the desire to scholarly find out about cannibalism and, what greater and more noble desire could there be, Robin? Well, I think uh, now that we've covered the nobility of these titles, it's time to just we'll bask for a second in their glory and their speciality, and then we will head on out to another segment. The Best of Askfageln is now available at DriveThruRPG. All issues of Phoenix Magazine since 2013. That's spelled F-E-N-I-X. Can now be grabbed in special English editions. Containing stellar gaming material from our own Ken Height. And such other recurring stalwarts as Graham Davis. And Pete Nash. Also find Dice, the gorgeous photo book celebrating that classic gaming accessory. And Freeway Warrior, the series of post-apocalyptic Choose Your Adventures by Joe Dever. And if you speak Swedish, not English... That's Swedish, not English. You can delight in every original issue of Phoenix. And the new Sagebrush and Six Guns role-playing game, Western. How do you say slap leather varmint in Swedish? Uh, oddly, Google Translate refuses to help on that. That's the best of Askfageln on drive-thru. Keep the duct tape properly affixed to this podcast door by joining such beloved Patreon backers as... Scott Jones. Darren Dumay. Robert Dean. Brian K. Eason and Chris Lydon. The clattering of the teletype, the announcement coming over the tannoy, the ping of the Guardian's website updating, and the ping of the Guardian's website updating to remove all the typos tell us that we're entering a segment that has been ripped from the headlines. Today, beloved Patreon backer Paul Douglas challenges us to rip from the headlines this story saying, are either of you capable of making a three-point spend to explain the sudden appearance of a Russian economist at LAX with no travel documents, record of being on the plane, or memory of how he got there? 
Robin, do we feel capable? I believe we feel up to it. All right. We have a segment called Ripper in the Headlines where yeah. we do this very thing. So this story occurs on November 4th of uh, 2023. So just a few weeks ago as we record this. And indeed, the gentleman in question arrived at LAX on November 4th. And his name is Sergei Vladimirich Ochagava. Now, he did have some ID on him, but he didn't have the necessary ID. So he shows up at U.S. Customs, as one does on an international flight uh, to LAX. He'd come from Copenhagen. He'd been on the flight. So to say that there's no record of him being on the flight, there's eyewitness accounts of him Great, being yes. on that flight. So he shows up, says to them, well, oh, gosh, he pats his pockets and I seem to have misplaced my passport. I don't know. What do we do when you lose your passport in the plane? And the customs officer says, well, we call the airline and they look for your passport, buddy. Mm. And while they were doing that, he runs his name through the system. And when you buy an airline ticket anywhere in the world to go to the United States of America, it gets entered in a computer. Yeah. <laughs> and if they type in your name and it doesn't come up, eyebrows, shall we say, are raised. Because, in fact, there was no evidence that he'd ever purchased a ticket from that airline. And he had other ID with him. He had uh, Russian and Israeli ID cards, but no passport and no sign that he'd uh, been on the plane. So he was detained. Yeah. And a lot of people, a lot of people say, but, you know, surely if you don't have a passport, you can have a photo of a passport that just doesn't happen to show your face. Well, he had one of those also didn't work. Yeah. On, on his phone. That does yeah. not help. That does, In fact, <laughs> that makes things worse. When right. Do yeah. That. So as I mentioned, this fellow has been detained, but can people did remember him. Being on the flight. At this point, he's saying, I don't have any idea yeah. what happened. I I've haven't slept in three days. I have no idea where I came from, why I'm here. I don't know anymore, which is a shift from the I'm everything's fine, except I forgot my passport. Story. Right. Yeah. But people do remember his behavior on the plane because, Ken, it was rather peculiar. Yeah. First of all, as I suppose in retrospect makes sense, he kept shifting his seats and moving around and sitting in different parts of the plane, which if you have no ticket, why not? You know, why not go up and see how they're how they're living up in business class? He also allegedly ate two meals at each of the meal times. I assume Copenhagen to L.A., you get two, you get a dinner and you get a breakfast. And so he just wanted two meals instead of one. And then he tried. They say, and this is I, I would think this is would put you on a watch list already, especially on Scandinavian air. He tried to eat the chocolate that belonged to the cabin crew. And this, you, you get the senses they're calling around, finding out if anyone remembers this. Some, you know, irate air hostess is like, I'll tell you what that guy did and had a story. He tried to talk to people. People did not want to talk to this weirdo. He was trying to strike up conversations throughout. Yep. I guess the plan being if he made a friend, then he could sit next to the friend and blend in and not look like a total weirdo. Well, I have another theory, which we'll get to in a while. Which we'll get to in a bit. And he couldn't explain what he was doing in Copenhagen. He said he had no memory of that. He said he hadn't slept for three days and that he also claimed that he had a PhD in economics. And if you look on Russian social media, there is a guy named Sergei Vladimirovich Ochigava who graduated from Plekhanov University, got his degree in economics. And according to a website that I found, just closed an art gallery, which I suppose if you have a degree in economics, you know, that's what you do with an art gallery. But I'm not sure what that means. Closed it down as a rowdy drunk or owned it for a while and closed it because it turns out 
owning an art gallery when all your rich people can't get their money out of Western banks is a terrible business model. But either way, he doesn't know how he got onto the plane. He doesn't know how he got to LAX. He doesn't know anything. And in fact, they held him without bail because he's the literal definition of a flight risk. And then he missed his arraignment on November 30th because he was in the hospital, which I assume is from whatever after effects of whatever weird confusance that he was on. And then he's got his federal court trial coming on December 26th, where we will learn both more and nothing, I suspect. Right. Now, once you start to look up airline stowaways, you think, well, you know, if you've ever been in an airport and gotten on a flight and seen gate lice mm-hmm. in action, can't you know what gate lice are? No. What are gate lice? In airline employee lingo, that means the people who cluster around the gate when it's not their time to get on. <laughs> so, if you've ever seen the confusion that surrounds the boarding of an international flight, you would think that probably this happens relatively frequently, right? The mm-hmm. people can, you know, the airline employees checking people going in, they're human. Somebody could easily slip by in the guise of, you know, doing maintenance or whatever. But actually, it happens almost never. Most airline stowaway situations, people are climbing into the wheel wells and don't do that. Yeah, that's a terrible idea. Yeah, because basically, if you climb into the wheel well of a, a jet, roll a, a D4. If it comes up a one, you live. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, you horribly die. And so there are very few cases of people actually just slipping onto uh, aircraft. In 85, a a 10-year-old and a 13-year-old from Dublin, Keith Byrne and Noel Murray, had an epic journey. They they hitchhiked or stowed away on a boat, a bus, a train, a car, and then finally an Air India flight and got all the way to New York City. And in 2000, a a dissident Cuban named Roberto Egues uh, made it from Cuba to Paris, and he was in the cargo container. Right. Again, don't do that. He was badly harmed by the cold temperature. And then finally, in 2012, a Manchester 11-year-old named Liam Corcoran, annoyed at having to watch his mother shop, headed out for the airport, got on a plane to Rome, and they only found him halfway through the flight, and then they had to return him to Manchester. Right. So it's not completely unprecedented of people slipping onto flights without uh, tickets, but it's surprisingly rare. And you could imagine a situation where like a cool Jason Bourne type guy can slip onto a plane without a ticket or, you know, Penn and Teller, you know, used to do a bit about slipping through airport security, which they've stopped doing for some reason. But you can imagine sort of a, a really expert grifter or somebody talking their way, a Frank Abagnale type, you know, showing up on the plane without a ticket. This is not impossible. I feel like getting through customs is a plan you would need to have planned beforehand, but this sort of dozy weirdo doing it is sort of a bigger mystery than, you know, unless Jason Bourne is doing the world's greatest dozy weirdo impression and also not breaking out of what cannot be maximum security in Los Angeles. I feel like we have a a bigger set of questions here. Right. Well, I think the key to what's going on here is, is the date November 4th. Mm -hmm. And you look up, things that this could possibly correspond to, and it's probably not the strange comets that were seen over Constantinople in November 4th of 1865. Probably not. Probably not even the uh, Gloucester werewolf attacks on sheep on November 4th of 1905. Well, but that said, if you're led onto the plane as a wolf, you're not going to have a passport. Exactly. But I think that would explain the hunger. Yeah. But still, he was never seen in wolf form. Right. But I think the fact that he's Russian is what we have to look at here. Mm -hmm. And... November 4th, of course, is uh, election day. Now, Ken, you probably say to me, November 4th wasn't election day this year. Right. And yes, that's true. But as we both know about Russian intelligence, 
Sometimes their information about America is full of projection or is wrong or is just screwed up because, of course, November 4th was the very first uniform election day in the United States. And somewhere in the FSB, they have it written down that American election day is November 4th. And this is where the Lysenko division of the FSB comes in, because clearly this is part of their homunculus program, that if you look at the behavior of this guy on the plane, he is starved for nutrients because his homunculus body is still becoming stable. And as we know, he continued to be in ill health afterwards. And the moving around and trying to engage people in conversation as he's trying to activate his uh, language centers. Mm -hmm. And so clearly this is not a tulpa, but it's an actual biological false person, perhaps based on an actual gallery owner, or perhaps the entire background of the whole biography is, is faked. Yeah, because there is a Russian guy on Instagram named Sergei Vladimirich Ochigava. And I was, I was thinking, I found this guy's Instagram. This is the greatest thing ever. I've scooped the Guardian. And then it, it, he looks nothing like the other Sergei Vladimirich Ochigava. So either... It's the sort of cheap identity theft that you would expect from the Lysenko Directorate. Exactly. And if you're in the Lysenko Directorate, you are, I think, pretty worried. You still have to go ahead with your homunculus program. Mm -hmm. But you're worried that perhaps the upper echelons will remember that there's the Lysenko Directorate, which, of course, is the Russian weird science division. You know, science in quotes. It is named after Lysenko. And so I think what they're afraid of is, you know, they still got to do stuff with the program to justify its existence. Do the bare minimum amount. While, like everybody else in the Russian system, are stealing the maximum amount of the budget for themselves. Right. And so, they've sent this one guy, and they really hope that Putin doesn't notice that they can now manufacture people. Because I think Putin would come up with another reason why he would want mass-manufactured homunculi at this point. Yeah, he would, he would have a job for them to do. Very briefly, but they would be doing it. So, essentially, I think your job here is, as agents is to figure out uh, the homunculus program and realize that it's happening and ask yourself the question, what happens if this advances? The other thing, of course, though, is that perhaps they didn't just randomly dump him in Copenhagen because they logistically could, which I think is likely, but it could also be that they're trying to get at someone in prison and they're trying to get this guy in prison so he can go after them. The other salient fact, though, is that it's LAX. Uh, which, as we all know, is where magic goes to die in yeah. Southern California. Los Angeles, since at least the 20s, has been a hub of occult and alternate spirituality activity. It's got a lot of magic there. Of course, that's where Hollywood is and all of the stars who are momentarily instantiating forces of symbolic and mythological weight. And in order to control the magic there, they made LAX the most anti-magical place on earth. So it may simply be that they sent him there to make sure that their homunculus could survive even in an anti-magic field. Or maybe what happened is the homunculus was supposed to do a mission in Copenhagen and he got messed up by some magical group in Copenhagen. And then because there's so many wizards and whatnot in LA summoning things that there's sort of a generalized summoning that draws weirdos, drifters, blank slates, tulpas, egregores of all kinds to Los Angeles. And he just got caught up in that undertow. And it's like, you know, eels go into the sargasso. If you're a homunculus, you'll wind up in LA. I just think that that's, <laughs> yeah. you know. Where suddenly you'll start to get slowly better looking and mm -hmm. you'll get work done. Well, I mean, the, the, the Instagram sir guy is much better looking than this sir guy. So my theory is 
that if he had gotten out of customs and just sort of shown up in LA, he would have, you know, doppelgangered the original Sarah guy and he'd be a good looking, cool guy wandering around LA in a, with a cool Russian a accent. He'd probably be playing a bad guy on Reacher season three if he'd gotten out of that airport. Well, I think we can only uh, contemplate what Reacher would do with a bunch of homunculi, and we will contemplate it for as long as it takes us to get through this commercial to the final segment of this episode. In Delta Green, cosmic terror meets modern conspiracy. The secret group Delta Green dedicates itself to protecting humanity from unnatural horrors. They misappropriate the resources of the U.S. government to wage a war they must at all costs keep hidden. Delta Green, the conspiracy, is the source book for the grungy, cynical era that started it all. The 1990s. Generation X becomes Generation X! In Delta Green, The Conspiracy. An updated, rearranged version of the original 1997 Delta Green sourcebook with new art and graphic design. Featuring top-secret eldritch new appendices by Shane Blackbag Ivy. And a forward by Ray, plausibly deniable Winninger. Put on your flannels, grab your duffel bag of hardware, and assemble your fake passports. Enter the Temple of the Dog, exit the Temple of Cthulhu. Never mind all the brain leakage you suffer when seeking the Nirvana of Nyarlathe tap. Find the fungi on the Mina airfield. And why Jeremy really spoke in class today. Tell your retailer it's at that unmarked warehouse they always order from. That's Delta Green, the conspiracy. From Arc Dream Publishing. The clacking of time gears and the whirring of chronotons tell us that we're once more standing in proximity to Ken's time machine, which of course is the conveyance that his superiors at Time Incorporated used to send our chrono hero back into history to bend, fold, spindle, and even mutilate it. And this time around, we have a treat because the master of asking Ken's time machine questions, other than arguably me, is Philip Masters, our colleague and pal. And he has crafted yet another uh, splendid uh, premise for you to explore, Ken. And it goes like this. Would Ken care to address the scurrilous rumors that he confused Stephen of Blois for William Adeline when setting up a drinking contest in Barfleur on the 25th of November, 1120? And has Time Incorporated ever suggested that he should slip Stephen an emodium? So what Phil is doing in his elegant way is alluding to the white ship disaster of 1120, which uh, wiped out a good chunk of the English royal family of the time. And can he has properly explained that this is a scurrilous rumor that would be spread by time enemies, because of course you wouldn't arrange for the uh, the deaths of so many people. That's not your deal. But I bet you've been there and uh, are perhaps casing the joint to see if you might want to change the timeline. Also, I think that it's scurrilous to assume that I would mistake a 17-year-old boy, William Aithling, for a 28-year-old, at the top end of the estimate, man, uh, Stephen of Blois, I think that that's just ridiculous. Even if I were trying to arrange some sort of chicanery. Right. You might murder a bunch of people, but you wouldn't make that historical mistake. I wouldn't make that elementary mistake. But in order to explain the premise, we have to go back to the fact that Henry I is king of England. He's the fourth son of William the Conqueror, 
all the other sons having proved traitorous or upsetting. William Rufus was king. He was King William II. And he died in a mysterious hunting accident, Robin. It's so sad. He rode into the new forest and they found him with an arrow in him and they said, must have been a hunting accident. It's a number one cause of death of, uh, of kings. Probably cleaning his crossbow yep. and it went off. That boar shot, a, shot an arrow at him. Yep. That's what happens. He drew down on one of the armed deer. So anyway, his doubtless blameless brother, Henry I, inherits the throne. And now Henry I is a man who enjoys sleeping around, but has maybe poor luck with, with his actual queen because he only has two legitimate kids. He's got an army of illegitimate children, but he's only got two legitimate children. One of them is named Matilda, as is literally everyone else in this story. <laughs> it's, it's very annoying, the number of Matildas. Right. At the age of 12, in 1114, she marries the Holy Roman Emperor Heinrich V. And for the rest of her life, and frankly, Matilda gets a lot of hate in English history, but I love her down to the ground. She's a 12-year-old girl, shows up, marries the Holy Roman Emperor, is running Italy for him by the time she's 16. And of course, she signs all of her business correspondence, Empress Matilda. Of course she does. She's amazing. I won't hear a word against her, but unfortunately, the Holy Roman Emperor dies in 1125, somehow having not had a baby with Matilda, so she's childless, and so rather than enter a nunnery, which was her other career option, she marries Geoffrey Plantagenet, who's the Count of Anjou, and Henry arranges that because Anjou, being just south of Normandy, keeps trying to steal Normandy from England, and he thinks, well, if uh, he's married to my if daughter- If anybody's going to organize him, it's, it's Matilda. Right, he'll stop that. Sadly, in the dowry, he said, and Matilda will bring with her castles in Normandy, but he doesn't say which ones or when. And so Jeffrey Plantagenet says, so I can grab them now. And everyone's like, doo, 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 doo. so it's a situation that's ongoing. Always specify which castles. His male heir, his legitimate male heir is William the Aethling, also known as William Adolin. And he is 17 in 1120. And he is the golden boy. He, everyone loves him. He's great. He's going to be magical. He's fun to drink with. He's fun to drink with. And the reason he's fun to drink with is he's buying. And that's the best thing. So the other person in this equation is Stephen of Blois, or Blois, as the French will call it. But this being about England, I shan't. Um, Stephen of Blois is the third son of Henry's sister, Adela. So he's Henry's nephew. So he's the, you know, grandson of William the Conqueror, but through Adela. And he grows up as a trusted and favored nephew because he is a third son, so he can't possibly seize power. He's actually pretty bright, very smart, respectable, level head on his shoulders, the kind of person whose brother you can make an archbishop and who you can trust with important castles that you don't want to accidentally give away in a wedding dowry. So Stephen of Blois is sort of a rising figure at court. Everyone loves him. And come to 1120, when Henry I has been in France discussing matters of possession of Normandy. He thinks he's sorted it all out. And he says, all right, let's all go back to England. And so a guy named Thomas Fitzstephen shows up and says, well, my father piloted your father, William the Conqueror, across the channel. Why don't you ride in my boat, my boat, the white ship? It's the best boat. It, it's a great boat, classy boat. Nothing can go wrong with this boat. And Henry said, I already have a boat. But I also want to take your money so you can pilot my son, William the Eighthling, and all of his friends 
and uh, my nephew, Stephen of Blois, and all of my, a uh, whole bunch of my bastard children, and it'll be great. It, it'll, it'll be, be almost the party ship. ship. It will be the party ship, and indeed it was the party ship. So, because uh, what happens is 300 people are crowded onto this boat. This includes the 50 oarsmen, it includes the rest of the crew, it includes some Marines, but it's also mostly rich jerks who are sucking up to William Aithling. And they say, oh, William Aithling, you're so special. You're so magical. You're such a, a golden child. Are you buying? And William Aithling says, of course. And he buys enough wine for 300 people and has it brought on board. So the cargo of the white ship, just to keep it straight, is a bunch of rich jerks, Henry's illegitimate children, William of Aithling, a lot of wine, and Henry's treasure, which he puts on the boat because it's a very good boat. So they start drinking. Henry is like, I've got to go. He gets onto his boat and sails and they're still drinking and they're still drinking and they're still drinking. And some people, then we've got like six different medieval records of this decision. Some people are like, there is too much drunken bad behavior on this boat. I'm leaving. One assumes they were snubbed by William of Aithling or by some royal bastard. So anyway, they get off the boat. And then well, I, I would have left that party. I'm, yeah. I'm a known party leaver. You are a known party leaver. You would be like, well, it's getting late. I'm gonna... So Stephen of Blois also leaves the boat and there is sort of a, why did he leave the boat? Is it because of all the drunkenness? Is it because of all the sinning? There is a scurrilous rumor spread that there's a great deal of sinning on that boat, which I won't go into because it's very scurrilous. Is it just too crowded? Is it not his scene? He's 28. He's like, these are all teenagers. I hate teenagers. I've been there. Or, according to Orderic Vitalis, the one of the chroniclers, he had diarrhea, just got sick, which is why Philip suggests the Imodium. So he's like, I definitely don't want to be on a channel voyage feeling like this. Again, I get it. He gets off the boat. So anyway, everyone on this boat is drunk, including, importantly, the captain and all the sailors. And so they sail out. And everyone's like, oh, we have to catch the king. We have to beat him to Southampton. And they're great. Yes, yeah, so this is a big drunk decision is to catch yes, up to the Yes, this is a big drunk decision. Put all the oarsmen on, raise the sail. We're going to charge across the channel and beat Henry the, to Southampton. And imagine the look on his face when we're all on the pier laughing at him for being slow. Yeah, that'll be worth it. That'll be worth that'll it. That'll be a big payoff. Right. Well, unfortunately, in their drunken state, people forget to add the effect of putting up the sail too early and the boat sails out at a horrendous uh, rate of speed and slams into a rock, a known rock in Barfleur. It's about a mile off from the Harbor. It's called Kilbuff, which I think means pen and beef, but maybe I could be wrong. It slams into this rock stoves in the side and everybody drowns. And the one survivor is a guy named Berold, who is a butcher from Rouen who apparently had, gotten on the boat to collect all the money owed to him by William of Aithling, who had apparently eaten a lot of meat and then skipped on the bill. And so Berold is there and imagine being at the worst party you've ever been at, but you're also there to collect money. Trying to collect a debt. It's just impossible. When I initially saw the one report just said a rustic survived. And I thought, was that, is that Ken and his rustic gear? But it turns out this person is is well attested. Now there is one story where Adolin almost makes it out that he gets on a, you know, the equivalent of a lifeboat and is headed away. And then he hears the cries of the other Matilda in the story, the Countess of Parish. I have literally left off two Matildas, but yes. <laughs> right. Well, we can go back and fill in Matildas if you want, although we're, no, we're, I don't we're running overtime. I don't and want. according to this story, he orders the lifeboat back. And then when that happens, guess who gets on the lifeboat? Everybody sinking the lifeboat and yep. killing him. Uh, we don't know whether this actually happened, but it does 
you know, redeem him a little in the story as having been heroic before he's drowned for his stupidity. Right. And so the upshot is that Henry has no heir. And so he says, well, I guess my heir is Matilda. It's my only actual legitimate heir. And he makes everyone promise to serve Matilda as queen when he dies. Empress, no doubt, Matilda says from offstage. And then at the moment of his death, Robin, would you believe that he said, nope, actually, I want Stephen of Blois to be my heir. And you saw it, doctor, who was in the room and paid by Stephen of Blois. And then he dies and Stephen of Blois takes over and makes himself king and Empress Matilda is not having it. And so there is what is called the anarchy, or basically a gigantic civil war between Stephen and Matilda. And again, no one who knows anything about Matilda has any doubt as to what happens. At the end, her son, Henry II Plantagenet, becomes king of England, and it's all fixed. And so we have the Plantagenets of glorious memory. So Stephen of Blois, just an earnest, you know, third-ranking bureaucrat, tries to become king, ruins it for everybody. And I guess this is why Phil suggests that we should have plugged him up and put him on the white ship so he could have drowned, and in theory then avoided the civil war over Matilda. I feel like Robert of Gloucester would have tried it if Stephen of Blois didn't, but you know, whatever. I feel like, I guess that's all right, because the important thing is that the Plantagenets become kings, and if you just avoid a civil war and Matilda's the queen, and uh, her husband Geoffrey is the Prince Regnant, or whatever you call it, who's the boyfriend of the queen, great. But stopping England from ruining itself is a, it's a job for a different time guy, I'll say that. Right. So that's just history, as it occurred. And so the question is, why are time enemies dragging your name into it? Yeah, well, that is a fair question. I think what happened is they read giant drinking party goes horribly wrong, murders everyone in royal family and says, well, obviously that's height. That's that's a fingerprint if I ever saw one. And it might have even been my time buddies. You know, who can say? Because after work, you know, a bunch of us go down and we we hit a couple of places that I know or places and times, I should say, that I know. And yeah, stuff gets out. I'm not saying it doesn't. So if there's ever drinking party turns to disaster, I think my name is going to be dragged into it, Robin. I feel like um, you know enough guys in the time incorporated infrastructure that you're aware that this is a dynamic that happens. Right. Well, there's a rumor, in fact, that some of the people who left with Stephen of Law were time travelers. Is that is that correct? Well, I think that if you are a time traveler at what is... In fairness, one of the great ragers of the 12th century, you do need to set your watch to say, I got to get off this boat by midnight, because if I don't, I'm going to have to beat up a butcher and steal his woolen coat, which is the only thing that keeps him alive, because everyone else is dressed in, you know, court finery, which, while admirable in many ways, is neither waterproof nor cold resistant. So, bad situation. Right. So, have you been to this incident at all, or you've just heard people talking about you in regard to it? Well, I mean... It is a gigantic rager, and William of Aethling was buying. And, and you might also have had a coat that was similar to the butcher's, but you got off sooner. Is this what I'm hearing? Might or might not have had a wool coat. You know, obviously, it's important to dress warm if you're in a time situation in November in 1120. I mean, it's the medieval warm period, sure, but it's still November on the English Channel. So, do the math, people. Well, I think we've uh, successfully answered this uh, this time mystery. It's not one that involves a big shift of the timeline, but as you indicated, shifting the timeline just gets you a different group of uh, people going to war. It doesn't give you a a lack of war in this instance. So I guess on that somewhat cynical note, (laughs) we have to end this episode, but we'll be back with another one that I'm sure will just be 
sunshine and flowers and not a not a hint of cynicism uh, when we're back next week Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrane Press. Astvagelm. Hark Dream. Dork Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Support our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Ken and Robin. Make sure that this podcast never winds up bereft in LAX by throwing in with esteemed backers. The Redacted Files Podcast. Dave Stecco. Jacob Borsma. Matt Farr. And Sean Hoyle. Wear this show or drink it from a mug with Ken and Robin merch at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. Celebrate densely packed biomes with our latest design, You Are a Special Island. On X, he's at Kenneth Height. And on Mastodon, he's Robin D. Laws at Dice.camp. See you next time when, once again, we will talk about stuff.